I'm John Banther, and this is Classical Breakdown. From WETA Classical in Washington, we're your guide to classical music. This time, I'm joined by WETA Classical's Linda Carducci, and everything in this episode was recommended by you, the listener. We have three popular works to explore by composers Johann Pachelbel, Franz Liszt, and Ray Fawn Williams. Plus, stay with us to the end as we answer a couple of your questions. Okay, Linda, we've had many people write into us over the years of this podcast, and this is the episode where we take a look at some of the works that people have requested. This first one was requested by Andrew R., who wrote in saying this is one of his favorite works from the Baroque period, what we know as Pachelbel's Canon. And this is one that some people love it, some people hate it. Either way, this was pretty inescapable for a while, I think, in the 80s and 90s. It was, and what's interesting is that it fell out of practice and performance for many, many years after Pachelbel wrote it, and then it was resurrected in the 20th century. Um, Arthur Fiedler actually conducted it first and, and recorded it first, but then in the 1960s, in 1968, Jean-Francois Payard recorded it, and that's what brought it into public attention. And this recording, well, it's a style that was then repeated and um, copied for many different ensembles. And that is, he plays the music here, the canon, quite slow. It's much slower than it would have been in Pachelbel's time. Notes are played tenuto. They're full length. They're kind of stretched out and very evenly played. And then he even added extra parts in that were required to be played that Pachelbel didn't write. So that's not to say... That's why maybe I dislike it. If someone likes that version the most, absolutely listen to uh, listen to that one. But the other side of this is there are recordings that are more in the style of perhaps Pachelbel that I think can really grab people's attention. These are kinds of recordings that I really enjoy. The tempo is much brighter. The notes have separation, a little more life, and um, they're able to lift off of the notes, give a little space and more style and character Um, characterization, I think, when you have this um, different style of playing that you can find in recordings like one we're hearing now. It was popular in the mid-20th century to romanticize Baroque Mm -hmm. music. Um, Stokowski did that, for example. He's a good example of that. Taking the Baroque music as written and expanding it, playing it in a very romantic, expressive way, and orchestrating it in a very large sense, in a much larger sense than it was in its original form. So many people heard Baroque music in this very romantic, lush, large uh, kind of performance in the 20th century. That's a perfect example of it. I I, I listened to the Payard Mm -hmm. uh, recording of it, and and I do think it is sort of a, a romantic uh, sense oh, yeah. of what he's putting in there. However, in the last few years, as you, as you note, people have been trying to get a little bit more of fidelity to the score, fidelity to the style. And so going back to maybe period practices yeah. and period instruments. Yes. And I love it. But although that this Payar style of playing, it does, it, I mean, I wasn't around in the 70s, but I feel like this was a really big 70s vibe. Yeah, it was. It was that was an interesting time for music in general. Rock yeah. music was exploding oh. with you know social injustice and social themes. It was a great time for music. So this piece is a canon and a gigue, and a lot of people don't know the gigue. I think which comes after the canon because we're so used to the romanticized version that is played in all of the weddings, of course. And I think the person is at the you know end of the aisle or wherever they need to be 
by the time the canon's over. <laughs> so the gig is just omitted a lot of times. So I guess we get to the question of what is a canon? Because yes, I mean the, the word canon. You know, obviously we aren't talking about the thing that that shoots the the bullets out or whatever. And also we're not talking about like a library, like somebody's canon. Mm. But in as far as a musical term, yeah, what does a canon mean, John? So a canon. Well, first, a lot of people think of perhaps "Row, row, row your boat" or "Frere Jacques" as being a canon. Those. Are what we can call around, which is a type of canon, and these are kind of hard to define because we're talking about centuries of use of a term. Like if you go to the Harvard Music Dictionary of canon, it's several pages long and has all kind of context of, of、um, time periods and、um, practices. So, row, row, row your boat, for instance. Around is it's quite strict. It is that one line that is then repeated. Perhaps for infinity, if you want, with people coming in at those set intervals, and a big kind of clue to it is there's really no music to it, right? We don't sit and study this when we're five years old how to sing "Row, Row, Row Your Boat." It kind of comes naturally. A canon is more, much more broad. It can be more vague. There's many different kinds of rules and ideas that can go with it. So instead of perhaps copying the exact same thing that was just introduced. The next voice might come in on a different pitch. It might start it on a different pitch. It may、mm -hmm. alter the rhythm slightly. It might evolve a little bit more, and there can be accompaniment as well, like we have here with this bass line that repeats over and over again. We call that an ostinato. So for this particular canon and three voices, the three violins, they're each coming in on the same pitch. I believe that's called a、um, canon in unison.、Mm -hmm. But it allows so much more opportunity. For instance, here it's not the same thing over and over again. It develops and evolves over these kinds of variations. Yes. So if you hear the beginning of this, for example, the the melody, if you will, that starts off and that is repeated after, like I think, two measures is with the interval.、Mm -hmm. Or they're just probably half notes. They're just strict half notes, right? Quarter notes. Quarter are they quarter notes? They、okay. sound like half notes in Payar's long version, <laughs> but they're 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 quarter, quarter notes. notes. Okay. But then、uh, Pachelbel Bell starts、um, doing an elaboration of that, and so now we start to hear little triplets, and we start to hear some sixteenth notes on that same theme,、mm -hmm. and then the bass remains the same. Is that correct? That's correct. He goes quarter notes, then he does、um, eighth notes, two notes in a beat, and then he adds sixteenths, four notes in a beat, and that gives it this kind of unfolding. Sound. It's like it almost never ends. Like you zoom in on a picture that has this elaborate pattern, it just gets more and more,、um, more and more elaborate. It sounds very organic and natural. I think that's also another reason why we're drawn to this because it's this slow, long evolution of a very, very simple tune. Yes, like a butterfly slowly opening up its its wings.、Ah. You know, theme and variations. That's what this is. Sort、mm -hmm. of is a very popular form that has been used throughout the centuries. I mean, Brahms wrote several. Themes、oh yeah, and variations, and we call it Pachelbel's Canon today. If you said that, you know, any time before this, it'd be confusing because because of course there are thousands of canons. There are, you know, this was something that people wrote, composers were write actively writing、um, quite a lot. So after the canon, perhaps when the person's at the end of the aisle, there's more music to come. That and that's a jig, and it sounds kind of like jig, which is well, not a、um, not a coincidence. This is a, an upbeat, clearly dance-sounding、um, 
piece here at the end. And what makes this a gig, Linda, or what makes this really different from what we just heard, is that instead of having two notes in a in a beat, we now have three notes in a beat. That da 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 da. da. It gives you that propulsive feeling, and that's one of the defining characteristics of a gig. It's compound meter, meaning we're putting three notes in a beat instead of two. And this should, I think, this should always be included with the performance of the canon. I do too. I think it's juxtaposed very well with the canon. Jig uh, is a, a dance, as you say, and it was a popular dance from the Renaissance and the Baroque era. Yeah. And uh, if you look at Johann Sebastian Bach, for example, in his orchestral suites or in certainly his keyboard suites, the jig was a very common dance that he would include. Oh yes, it would be an, an almost an expected part of a suite that yep. you'd have a, a jig in with these other kind of dances. Now, Pachelbel's canon, as we can just call it, it's been quite influential, even more than perhaps we, we may think. Maybe people remember, if maybe you were an, an angsty kid in the 90s like me, and remember, you know, you loved Green Day and the song Basket Case. Well, that starts with almost verbatim Pachelbel's canon. <laughs> okay. Yeah. okay, yeah, that's interesting. That that shows you, I think, the value of the base work that, that other people have come along and thought that they can sort of use that as their base to, to, to make some flourishes. Yes. And so that's Pachelbel's canon. We know we've learned what a canon is and, and what a gig is. I recommend listening to this more Baroque-style recording I'll put on, on the website as well. And if you're more used to that, listen to the Payar one as well. And it's fun when you listen to this, really listen for when each voice comes in, what changes. And you'll probably start to pick on some moments in the music you did not recognize before. Yes. So we go to our second request now, and that is the Liebestrom number three by Franz Liszt, also recommended by Andrew R., who wrote in and said, my late grandmother told me about this beautiful piece from her music teacher when she was a little girl. This one is so touching, isn't it, Linda? Oh, it's very touching. Have you played this? Uh, no, I, I, I tried to play through it, but I would just tell you this very quickly. In college, my piano teacher was very, very strict. Mm -hmm. But thankfully, he did not give any of his piano students the traditional piano repertoire. Mm. He gave us off-the-beaten-path yeah. music, which I which I really respected. So yeah. no, I did not learn this. Oh, okay. Well, it's so beautiful and it kind of just grabs you. There's something about it that also feels kind of nostalgic and it was originally a set of three songs that he put together with poetry by Ludwig Uhland. I think that's the first two. And then the third one, which we're talking about now, the most famous, takes its inspiration from a poem by Ferdinand um, Freilegrath. And later he took these and made a set of piano pieces. But if you think you don't like song, you know, leader, this one might be the one that changes your mind because it's just as beautiful, if not more so, than the piano version. Oh, I think so, too. You're right. Uh, there were originally three songs with, with verse by, by these poets you named uh, for high voice and piano. And then they were made for piano solo, which Franz Liszt tended to do. He would take sometimes one piece and then mm -hmm. arrange it for, for various different um, ensembles or configurations. When I listened to this particular one, this Liebestrom, the most famous of, of the three of this, I think of Chopin so much. Yes. Franz Liszt was a great admirer of Frederick Chopin. Chopin could write some beautiful melodies. Mm -hmm. And Franz Liszt particularly admired some of the melody and the melodic talent that uh, Chopin had. Mm -hmm. So when I listen to this, I feel it's almost in that Chopin vein. 
because it's like you have this one note that's repeated quite a lot and it's just kind of almost poking deeper and deeper at your heart if you want to get sentimental about it. And also how he stretches time in this one. Time is very malleable, it seems, at parts. In part because we have these kinds of flourishes and many cadenzas between what we can call three sections of the Liebestrom number three. Again, like Frederick Chopin. Yes. You know, Chopin would do that in some of his pieces. I, I've, I've played them in some of mm-hmm. the ballades and um, the nocturnes. He will go on these little flights of fancy with the piano. It shows that that he's sort of taking the thought of that melody and just sort of expanding it just a little bit, will of a wisp, just a sort of a flight of fancy for just a moment and then back down to earth. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also a way for for the, for the composer, in, the, in this case for Chopin and, and Liszt, who were both pianists, to show off the piano. The piano was expanding at that time, and it was oh, getting, yeah. getting greater sonorities. And so this was a way to to showcase the beautiful sonorities of a piano. And such such complete freedom between these, what we call kind of call three sections. And it reminds me of perhaps a symphony from a century earlier, maybe by Haydn, when you think of the first movement of a symphony having three sections. The first one introduces the thematic material, the second one explores and develops that material, and then the third section brings us back in to the original idea before tying it all together with a coda, which we'll explain in a little bit. But these little piano moments, cadenzas, they, they seem to just kind of float by. You don't really think about them. They're not so in your face where it's like, oh, something's happening, we're changing, but it just kind of dreamily wisps you along from one section to the next. And like a symphony, where in this middle section goes in all kinds of different keys, Liszt does that as well, although quite briefly in the second part. Sure, and let's remember that what he's trying to convey in this particular third piece of the of the set is a poem. Yes. A poem about mature love mm-hmm. and a person who has loved someone probably in their older age now and has lost that love. Yeah. And is talking about, you know, oh, you know, I, I love you and, you know, telling people, gee, appreciate your loves yeah. as you have them because someday this will all go away. So that is the concept behind this entire piece. That's what that's what List is trying to say. And I'll put the poem on the show notes page if you I mean if you love poetry. It's great. It's very, um, it's also, I mean, I think it's very intense. You know, you have to be in the right frame of mind or be careful when you're reading this because it can be quite intense and sad. Yes, it is. And um, I'll I'll read just a little bit here. And this was originally in German, so this is an English translation. But reading it, it says, O love, as long as love you can, O love, as long as love you may, the time will come, the time will come when you will stand at the grave and mourn. Be sure that your heart burns and holds and keeps love as long as another heart beats warmly with its love for you. And if someone bears his soul to you, love him back as best you can. Give his every hour joy. Let him pass none in sorrow. And it just goes on from there, and it does get quite quite sad. It does, but this is a a mature love, a person Mm -hmm. who is now mature, maybe toward the end of his life, and looking back at what love has meant to him. Mm -hmm. It's not a love in the moment. It's not a young love. It's not an impulsive love. It's a mature love looking back at at the the virtues of love. 
That is what Franz Liszt is trying to convey in this particular work. And I think it helps to think about that, John, what he's trying to say when you hear this. Absolutely. If you've not seen the poem or if you didn't know that the poem was associated with this, give it a read and listen to this and, um, you know, grab a tissue or two at the same time. <laughs> Franz Liszt, you know, he was a great pianist, of course. So when he when he starts this piece off, uh, the melody is in the, the middle section of, of the keyboard, the so-called tenor section. Okay. And it's played with the thumbs, you know. Two hands, yeah. two thumbs, but in the center section. Mm-hmm. And then he goes on this flight of fancy, this little cadenza you're talking about. Then he comes back again. Yeah. And this time it's with, with the right hand. He uses octaves mm-hmm. at some point to bring it back. So now we're talking about higher register of the piano with octaves. Yeah. And then again, alternating with those flights of fancy, those little cadenzas that go on, mm-hmm. you know, that maybe the, the, the old person dreaming about his youth, those are those little flights of fancy. And then he comes back down again to remember... Yes, I'm talking about a mature love and the love that I had and the love that I lost. And it's in a different register on the keyboard. Mm. There's a reason why it's such a popular encore as well. Yes. Everyone loves it. Yes. Now, there's a new musical term that we can, I think, learn with this one. There's a good example of a little section at the end of a movement we can call a coda. This is a section kind of like canon. You look up the definition in the, you know, the Harvard Dictionary, it could be, it might be pages long. (laughs) But Mm -hmm. basically the sense is, this is the very end closing section where we're getting, as I think Bill Bukowski likes to say, maybe, you know, put a ribbon on it, just tie a bow, (laughs) just clean it all up. Wrap it up. Some new material might be introduced. It can feel very nostalgic. And a good way to know or to kind of figure out, well, where is the coda? As you're listening to this, you can hear for towards the end, a moment where it sounds like if the music stopped right here, that'd be okay. It would sound complete and natural. But after that, the music goes on a little bit. And so in the case of um, this Liebestrom number three, it ends in A-flat major, nice chord going up on A-flat major, and then it continues instead of just kind of letting that ring out. And that's when you know, okay, now we're into this coda section. Yes, as you say, a coda means tail. It means the end, mm-hmm. and it's it's tacked on to the end to sort of bring everything together and wrap it up, as you said. Uh, this particular coda is not very long. Codas can be long or short. Oh, yeah, very lengths. short. I think this one is relatively short for Franz Liszt, and I just think it's particularly gorgeous. Oh, yeah. It is a way, it, it's a wistful, very slow, intentional coda in which the the person who is expressing this thought is now finally closing his thoughts, finally closing the thought of, of all that this brought to him. And there's a serenity to the end of it. I think it's a particularly beautiful coda. Listening to it a couple of times, and you get a sense of how the coda is happening. Pay attention for that in other works, perhaps ones that you already love and know really well. You may be surprised kind of what you find. Can I ask you, was it the same person who requested uh, the um, Paco Belcanon and the Liebestrama? Yes, Andrew R. Okay. Yes. Thank you very much for that because those are two polar things. One is Baroque and one is straight oh, yeah. heart romantic. And we'll get to the next listener request right after this. That brings us to our third one, which was requested by Tom S., who wanted to hear more about The Lark Ascending by Rafe Von Williams. 
another beautiful work, another one based on poetry. This one's based off of a poem from 1881, and it was by George Meredith. And Vaughn Williams originally had the idea of writing this for violin and piano, which he did in 1914. But then in 1920, he wrote it out for orchestra and violin, gave it the subtitle Romance, something you find in a lot of Williams' slow lyrical works. And he included 12 lines, I think, from the poem in the manuscript itself. Yes, George Meredith was a, a poet, an English poet, and was a particular favorite of uh, Ray Von Williams. And as you say, uh, Von Williams would use the term romance, not necessarily to mean love, but sometimes just for something slow and contemplative. Mm-hmm. Now, this premiered in 1920 in London on the same concert as the first complete performance of Gustav Holst's uh, The Planets, which we did a whole episode on, um, number 12. So if you know The Planets... You might think, well, it's pretty easy for something like this, the lark ascending, to just go, you know, disappear into the ether. But it it definitely was noticed and pretty much loved right away. One critic for a big paper said that the lark ascending stood apart from the rest as the only work in the program which showed serene disregard of the fashions of today or of yesterday. It dreams its way along in many links without a break, and though it never rises to the energy of the lines, He is the dance of children, thanks of sowers, shout for primrose banks. The music is that of the clean countryside, not of the sophisticated concert room. I think that last line is important, the countryside, not the concert room, because Vaughn Williams, of course, was very involved with English folk song as well. Vaughn Williams particularly loved the violin, and so he uses now the violin as the showpiece here to describe or give the image or give the the kind of sense or atmosphere of larks ascending. Mm -hmm. From my basic research about larks, it appears that larks do not nest in trees. They nest on the ground. Yeah. And so when they ascend, they do so very slowly from the ground, but they do very slowly in a circular motion because they're waiting for a wind to get underneath them yeah. to take them aloft, and then they will vi- finally get aloft. Okay. So it's a rather dramatic kind of ascension. Mm. Unfortunately, we don't have them here in the United States, I think. These are uh, European birds. But I'll, I'll read a little bit of the poem, too, because it, I think it um, is right in line with what you're saying, describing the lark's flight. In the poem that Vaughn Williams includes here, the lines are, He rises and begins to round. He drops the silver chain of sound of many links without a break and chirp, whistle, slur, and shake. For singing till his heaven fills, tis love of earth that he instills. And ever winging up and up, our valley is his golden cup. And he the wine which overflows to lift us with him as he goes till lost on his aerial rings and light and then the fancy sings. Oh, that's beautiful. It is. And it, and I think we, we love this so much, this piece where it speaks to us. Of course, I'm always sentimental, but it's a depiction of a bird. And one of the most things we associate with birds, I think, is this idea of freedom. Birds are absolutely free. They don't respect a country's borders. They don't care about your laws, your societal or cultural customs. They are, they are free. And so it's like Vaughn Williams is giving us an experience to see something that we can never fully attain. I think it's different from if we think of the music of Debussy from the last episode, where we can kind of interact with the music. I feel like we can't interact with it here. We're only observing this bird is unattainable up in the sky, something we can never have. 
I mean, just mention there's an eagle in the sky. Everyone here would just turn their heads up and look for the eagle. Yes, yes. It's a compelling work. He alternates these flights of fancy that the uh, that the bird is doing with solo violin and mm-hmm. periods. And then he brings very gently in the orchestra in such a way just to give a little bit of, of atmosphere to this wind that the, that the lark needs to ascend. And it starts very free. Actually, it can start very, very, very soft, almost like um, first dawn or something. And it's just two brief measures before the violin comes in with this cadenza, and they are absolutely free here, free like a bird maybe, because it says in the music, senza misura, basically there are no measures, which is how we kind of split up and dictate and make things, well, very rhythmic or put together in music. Now there's no measures. The violinist is free to do here with the music as they want, as the orchestra just plays this chord underneath. And when you listen to this one, the sound I think is quite characteristic in the violin. In the music, Vaughn Williams writes sur la touche, which means to use the bow towards the fingerboard, more above the fingerboard. This makes the sound, I mean, I'm not a violinist, but listening, it gives it a softer timbre, a little more airy in its sound. The articulations, like the beginnings of notes, they can be a little more softer, diffuse as well. And it gives this kind of dreamy, feeling to the, to the music. Halfway through this cadenza, when the violin goes to those very, very high notes, then Vaughn Williams writes um, natural, you know, put the bow back where it is usually. And then I'm not sure if that's because of the register of the violin, where it's easier to have the notes speak with the bow in that correct place. But it also gives, you'll hear, a little more kind of crystalline sound, a little more articulation, a little more clarity on the fronts of the notes as it gets out of the cadenza back into where the orchestra returns. Yes, as if the bird is in the highest reaches of of atmosphere, where it's very crystalline and clear and pure. Yes. I've not talked to a violinist about this, but I'm sure there's like a no caffeine rule. Like that day you play this solo (laughs) to sit up that high with your making sure your bow doesn't bounce around uh, hard. This one also has a couple of sections to it, kind of naturally. Of course, things are kind of pleasing, coming in threes, if you think. After this cadenza, we get a middle section, which is very different. Yes, yeah, it's it's the the full orchestra. Again, he's not using a, the, the very, very, say, large, like, you know, um, Rachmaninoff orchestra on mm-hmm. this. But, but yes, there are these alternations of the solo violin doing a cadenza, and then the orchestra coming in to, to somewhat support the bird, but also to give us a sense of atmosphere of what's going on. In the middle section, it's like he brings us back down to earth, or perhaps we're in the countryside observing this bird, and then he draws our attention with the, like this flute entrance back to earth around us. Maybe, you know, we've seen this bird and thought of, you know, daydreamed about it, and now we're back to earth, back to reality, perhaps trying to find those bird qualities, that, you know, freedom qualities in what's around us. Yes, and Von Williams scores those sections uh, sometimes with woodwinds. He uses the woodwinds very effectively Mm -hmm. to produce that kind of um, effect. Another thing we should think about here, Linda, is the time in which this premiered in 1920, after World War I, 
which I think, you know, a lot of the world, especially in Europe, was kind of in an existential crisis, uh, basically after the war and then dealing with those consequences. Yes, England was was hard hit during First World War, as were other countries. Um, This was a time when they were trying to rebuild, but you can imagine you're still sort of shell shock after losing so much of your population to the First World War. Oh, yeah. This is just an absolutely beautiful work. Getting to the end, it's even sometimes softer, almost religioso in character. It it certainly is. There is a religious sort of character, a sense of awe and wonder in this work. And this particular piece does remind me in some ways of the list that we just talked about, completely different styles, completely different eras, but the structure in some ways similar Mm -hmm. um, in that we have a contemplative section. And then we have, you know, say, for example, the, the violin in um, in the Von Williams and the piano main melody in the list. And then all of a sudden these condenses and these flights of fancy where maybe the, the, the composer or the person that they're depicting, all of a sudden their mind now wanders to some some lovely melody of of long ago or or fancying, you know, a fantasy of what they would love to do if they were up in the air yeah. or, or in the sea. Yeah. And then it comes back down again mm-hmm. to to maybe the main melody. I see this structure in, in both of these works. And I love how you can get all of those things together without even necessarily knowing the poem yeah. here. I mean, Vaughn yeah. Williams really brings it to you. And when he brings that violin back in the end for that kind of repeat of the opening sound, sometimes it's even softer. If the example we're listening to, it might sound quite airy and loud because you have to boost the volume even. Mm-hmm. They're so soft, it can almost be inaudible in the concert hall, which is actually quite beautiful when it kind of just floats out of literally nothing. Mm. He goes back to Sir Latouche, putting the bow towards the fingerboard to give that airy sound, softer articulation, softer sound. It's, you know, that's said, we use that almost too much, a soft sound. But he does it again there, and it really, I think, has even more impact in the beginning. Oh, I agree with you, because we've been on this flight now with the bird, and now things are, are resolving. Either he's coming back to nest, or he's just going back up into the atmosphere. It's a, it's a resolution. And you can imagine the skill required of a violinist to produce that. You know, sometimes we think that uh, the skill means somebody playing fast. Yeah. Or they're playing loud. Yeah, that's but the assumption. That's the assumption, but that's no. not the case. And I, and, I, and many musicians will tell you that's not the case. Sometimes it's more difficult to play softly and to carry a line very slowly. I think it's way more difficult, but it is extraordinary. And it, I think everyone's blood pressure has lowered <laughs> at the end of this in a concert. Yes. You know, there, there's a story, you know, Hilary Hahn was performing this mm-hmm. in London, you can imagine. Yeah. And the story that I that I read now, of course, is just anecdotal, and I'm I'm paraphrasing and everything. But she was in London for this, and was asked by three gentlemen, "Have you ever seen larks ascending?" Mm-hmm. And she said, "No, actually, I haven't." So she made a point to go out to the English countryside, yeah, and stand there and observe. And sure enough. You know, these larks, they're on the ground, they nest on the ground, and then they just very slowly and in a circular fashion, Mm -hmm. very slowly start ascending because they're looking for the wind to go underneath them to take them aloft. And she witnessed that, and she said that informed her interpretation, her performance of that work. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, I can only imagine the... I've, I've never seen that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've, I've been there plenty of times. I don't remember seeing a lark. They kind of look like finches, yeah, I think. They're small, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, small, brown, you know, whatever kind of birds. But um, that's incredible. I mean, mm-hmm. sometimes as musicians, that's what you need to do. Go and see the thing itself because mm-hmm. sometimes our image of something is not what it is in reality. Oh, yeah, that's for sure. So three pieces that we just talked about, the Pachelbel's Canon, the Liebestrom Number no. 3 by List, and Von Williams' Lark Ascending. Now we get to just a couple listener questions here. Mm-hmm. Lynn V. wrote in, I love your podcast so much, I am learning exponentially, and it has increased my appreciation of all the music I listen to. Well, thank you very much, Lynn. That's very kind. Mm-hmm. They continue, I noticed you and your guests say that something sounds modern, ahead of its time, or could have been composed today. I'd love to learn about what you're hearing that is ahead of its time or modern. That's a really good question. It almost reminds me, Linda, you know, if you're on the playground and someone asks you something and you say, well, if you have to ask, (laughs) you'll never know. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and, And I mean that jokingly. The thing is, when we say that, and we could probably do a better job when we say that to say why it sounds modern. Yeah. But we have, being musicians and working in music, we have the context of really knowing what music, you know, like in the early 1700s or 1600s sounded like mm-hmm. with these composers. And we know what it was like as it evolved through Mozart and Haydn and then Beethoven. So if you can think of, when perhaps something you're passionate about that is uh, maybe it's film or, or poetry or, or anything else, and you, you're able to recognize, because you have that context, what that person is doing, no one else is doing at that time. You know, it was ahead of their time. And so for music, we can think of a couple of, I think, clear examples. Like if you think of Berlioz's Symphony Fantastique versus Beethoven's Symphony Number no. 9. Feels like we couldn't get further apart here in, um, in kind of ideas. These are very, very different. Yeah. Composed or finished just years apart. I know, very close. 1824 is Beethoven 9, when that was premiered. Berlioz Symphony Fantastique, 1830. Yeah, so it's all relative is what you're saying. So, for example, let's say you listen to Mozart a lot, and you get a sense of how Mozart and Haydn sounded. They're, 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 they are your quintessential classical composers from the classical era of the, of the 18th century. So you get an idea of how the harmony sounds, how the structure's going to go, how the melody's going to go, and then you hear maybe somebody from the Romantic era, or even late Romantic, or even Beethoven, because Beethoven was experimenting all the time. Oh, yeah. And you hear, it sounds a little different. It sounds a little um, more adventurous, maybe a little bit more innovative than what you've just heard, but sort of like Mozart, but a little bit more innovative. Mm -hmm. That's where we sometimes, what we're referring to when we say that was a modern sound for that time. And it's oftentimes breaking down the structure or the established forms and ideas of harmony, for instance. That's an easy one that you can hear um, progress. Instruments? Not so much because, um, you know, Vivaldi wrote incredibly difficult oboe music that people wouldn't for a while, but he didn't write anything for the tuba because the tuba did not exist for another, like, century and a half. Mm. So it's not so much always the instruments because, well, a lot of instruments didn't exist at certain times, so they didn't have things like that. But that is, I think that was a great explanation, Linda, of how things can sound more modern or ahead of its time. Basically, if everyone hated it when it came out... Mm -hmm. They may have been ahead of its time. (laughs) 
And hey, I, I, I think of Beethoven as the quintessential experimenter. I mean, mm-hmm. Beethoven is it, you know, really. I mean, many people did it after two, after him, but Beethoven had the guts and the courage to oh, yeah. experiment, to go f- away from the standard sonorities and the standard structures and the standard sounds and do what he wanted. Right. The growth of Fuga, the fugue he ends basically his, his writing on his, his life with, had to have sounded so bizarre. And also rhythmically, it was very, very different too. Yeah. And by the way, that was just the last movement originally to a right. huge yeah. string quartet. Yeah. Already huge. Yeah. He was doing what he wanted. <laughs> Thank you so much, Lynn. And the last question is from Barbara S., who said, When I heard the What is a Concerto episode and learned that Vivaldi wrote more than 200 for the violin alone, it made me wonder why so many later and prolific composers only wrote a single concerto, Beethoven, Brahms, Tchaikovsky. You know it's common when his is known as the Tchaikovsky. That's a great question. Why did later composers only write a few or only one compared to the 200 violin concertos that Vivaldi wrote? Yeah, um, more than 100 Haydn symphonies. More than 100 Haydn symphonies, yeah. yes. Mozart wrote over 40. Yeah, 41. And then Beethoven, nine. Nine, yeah. Yeah. And so... What was happening was back in the day, when you're thinking like before Mozart into the 16th or 17th into the first half of the 18th century, composers are writing tons of music because they're writing especially for the court and for very wealthy people who, if I go to your estate, Linda, I don't want to hear some passe concerto from last month. I want to hear the new one. That was a That was part of it, but also... It was a popular form of music, so people were writing a lot of it. And they were shorter, usually. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they were definitely shorter, Mm -hmm. lighter, um, not as deep or developed musically, because that's not what was happening. But then when you get to someone like Tchaikovsky, it's totally different. Yes. Now we're talking about um, the later era, the Romantic era now. And uh, the concept for writing music was different. As John said, prior to that, during Haydn's, Mozart's day, it was uh, sort of his entertainment. Yeah. Now, in the Romantic era, that is of the 19th century, composers are writing because they have an artistic idea, an artistic expression that they want to express. And so now the fundamental concept is not, oh, I'm going to do something that's that's entertaining for other people. The concept is that they want to write an artistic piece that expresses what they want to express. Right. And I think you can also think of it like... um... You know, there were just new portraits unveiled at the White House. And if they just wanted their image, they would have just taken a a picture of Michelle Obama, for instance. But, you know, it's not about a picture. It's about the work of art. Yeah. That's that's what it is. And that's I think that's kind of an easy comparison. And because of that, then the next step is that uh, it takes longer to to think about it. Mm -hmm. It takes longer to develop it, the ideas, figure out the orchestration uh, who is going to play it? That took a longer period of time, yeah. say for Tchaikovsky to write one concerto, than it did for Mozart to write a piano concerto. Right, because he was he was Mozart was using a pretty standard formula. Oh yeah, and they could they could churn them out and they could reuse material. Yeah, Vivaldi, yeah. for yeah. instance, yeah. Tchaikovsky, not um, of course they did as well, but not on the level that they were doing before. Yeah, so now when it becomes a large artistic expression, it takes just a lot longer to write, to develop, to orchestrate, and that's why they wrote fewer of them, I think. That's it. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for um, writing in. Of course, we can't get to everything, so over time we'll do more. Do we have anything else for our listener requests? 
No, no, but I would go back to something you said earlier, and that is if somebody really does enjoy the Pachelbel canon, mm-hmm. it might be interesting for them to hear the two different interpretations. One is the ro- more romantic interpretation of Jean-François Payard, mm-hmm. which is available on YouTube. I'm oh, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Versus a more loyal interpretation, more fidelity to the style of the Baroque era, and that mm-hmm. would be a more modern inter- uh, performance. Oh, yeah. And then from there, you can choose which one you like the most, and that's the one you can listen to whenever you want. Right. All right. Thank you, Linda. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown, your guide to classical music. Did you like that guitar playing we heard earlier? That was none other than our very own general manager of WETA Classical, Dan Devaney. Now, if you have a piece of music you want us to talk about or a burning classical music question, send me an email at classicalbreakdown at weta.org. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review in your podcast app and tell a friend. I'm John Banther. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown from WETA Classical. Classical.